Praise the Lord. Thank you. Appreciate that, Smoker family. All right, before we get into our message here today, we'd like to wish uh, Sister Carol Paw a very happy birthday. We have a little gift for you, Miss Carol. I was going to have Brother Terry come and uh, fetch it for you, but I don't see him anywhere. He's probably out goofing off somewhere. But uh, anyhow, nice little gift, and uh, I did not lick the card. You're welcome. <laughs> so, and, and by the way, yeah, <laughs> give her a hand. All right. It's good to glad you finally turned 35. But uh you know just while I'm thinking about that just for uh, your uh assurance I send out birthday and anniversary cards and so forth. I have this thing at home. It's uh it's a little I take the cap off and it's a liquor. Not liquor. I don't have liquor at my home. No. I'm a Christian. I wouldn't do that. Where were we? We were somewhere, and uh, oh, we were picking up food at a to-go place, and uh, you had to pay for it right there uh, at the bar. And somebody was saying something about being in the bar. I go, I go, I don't hang out in there. I'm a Christian. I said it real loud. I say that's obnoxious. Whatever. Whatever. What was I going to say next? <laughs> oh, yeah, I have this little envelope stick that uh, seals the envelope. So when you open cards from me, rest assured, you're not getting any of my DNA. <laughs> All right, we are in the book of Daniel, chapter number 9. Daniel, chapter number 9, while you are turning there. Uh, we'd like to. I'd like to talk just a little bit about the 20th anniversary of 9/11 that we um, that uh, happened yesterday. And um, as you are well aware, that was the yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attack on the United States, which happened in 2001. And I'd like to remind all of us, because we need to remember these things, and that is this, that that day took the lives of 2,996 people. Now, that's certainly just the what happened on that very day. Certainly, there, were, there was additional fallout and suffering, uh, residual effects of that. The ensuing war on terror has estimated between, get a load of this, that 9-11 started really a global war on terror, and uh, they estimate 897,000, between 897,000 and 929,000 lives have been taken during this 20-year war on terror, including 364,000 civilians. We could add to that all of the wounded and debilitated, as well as the PTSDs that so many have suffered since 20 years ago, impossible to account for all of that suffering. But suffice it to say, the suffering is numerous, and even some of that continues to this day. My wife said that she saw something that... um, you know, some of the people that died in 9-11, there was one particular story of a, uh, a wife who was at home pregnant when her husband was killed on 9-11. And if you think about it, uh, they have a daughter that's 19 years old today, perhaps married, getting ready to get married, or whatever the case may be. That really puts things into perspective that the last 20 years have really flown by because there has been so much water that has been the current going under the bridge and all of the worldwide events that we've had to go through since then have certainly been numerous. Uh, I appreciate Brother James Childress reminding us of 9-11 at our men's prayer meeting last night. He brought a great devotion that certainly spoke to my heart and encouraged me on how that we ought to be be not weary in well-doing, for in due season ye shall reap if you faint not so easy to be ready to throw in the towel and quit. But you know, I'd like to, before I preach here this morning, 
take some time to thank the Lord for all of the sacrifices that were made, both in duty as well as protection of our freedom and our safety. Uh, Brother Jagrup showed this to me here this morning. I asked him if I could do a little show and tell. And um, uh, one of his sons found this on the ground. This is some charred, burnt debris that was flying around. They lived in the city of New York at that time, and this is an actual piece of charred paper that uh, was in some office in the Twin Towers. Not sure exactly uh, what it came from. It looks like it comes from some type of a um, some type of a book that you would find for reference in some type of an office or building. But uh, I, I look at that, and that really. That really, just seeing a physical momentum from that really, in my mind, makes it something real, not just something that we watch on television over and over and over. I'm sure that if you were at ground zero, you would have a much greater perspective of not only the sights, but the sounds and the smells, and it's certainly a traumatic thing. And so uh, I'd like to take, and, and listen, let me say this, and I'm not, well, let me say this, I, I am being sarcastic this morning, and, and that is this, I want to take a, a moment here, and I want to pray and thank God. This is not a moment of silence, like our president does whenever we have disasters in which we need the help of Almighty God. I'm not getting ready to lead you in a moment of silence. I'm getting ready to lead you in prayer to Almighty God. And I'm thankful that we have a God who is powerful. I mentioned recently that He is a gentleman, and He does not force His will upon any of us. He gave us a free will. And I thank Him for His goodness and for His grace, because as a nation, and then even as a man, I have to say that uh, God has been awfully good to me. He's been good to us. And as far as what we've had to go through, we haven't gotten near what we deserve in the way that we have treated our Heavenly Father. And so uh, let's take a few minutes here and thank God for um, for those who have suffered uh, 20 years ago, as well as for what God has done in our nation and what we need God to do in our nation. Join me in prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord, not with a canned prayer, uh, not with flowery, flattering words, but Lord, with a sincere gratitude for the lives that were lost and all of the suffering that took place 20 years ago yesterday, as well as all of the countless suffering and lives lost that has been a result of that fateful day. Lord, I remember vividly where I was at when I heard of it, what I was doing. I remember the shock, thinking this can't be real, this can't be true, this was an accident. And Lord, as information just continued to come throughout that day, how, how we felt that as a nation we are no longer uh, invincible. Lord, we felt vulnerable. I remember how even people that have had no faith or weak faith all of a sudden were very actively involved in prayer. It was encouraging to see so many people turning to you in prayer and in need. And Father, things certainly haven't gotten better in our nation. And with what we're going through, it I, I haven't seen that same type of spirit in America, people turning to God during our crisis and this pandemic and all of the natural disasters that seem to be more prevalent uh, each and every year. And God, I thank you for the mercy that you've showed upon us. Lord, uh, I pray that you would do a work in our nation. God, something needs to, needs to happen to turn our hearts back to you. Lord, I believe that it starts with us, your people, those that are saved. Lord, we've got to get serious about our relationship with Christ. We've got to be serious about living our lives in a way that it's pleasing to you. Lord, we need your presence. We need your power. Lord, uh, 
it's been evident to me that your presence and power has been withdrawn and continues to get further and further away. Lord, I cannot speak for our nation. I cannot speak for others. But Father, I want to say personally and publicly, God, that I want your presence back in my life and in our church and in our country. God, we need you desperately. God, thank you for your goodness and mercy. Please continue to help America. Lord, bring us to a place of repentance. Bring us to a place of salvation. And I pray for each and every one of us here today that you would give us grace on how to live the Christian life in these days in which we live. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Having said that, let's take a look at the book of Daniel. Tremendous, tremendous prophecy. I'd like to remind you here this morning from the very beginning that often in this day of skepticism, in this day of rejection of the authority of God's Word, I'd like to remind you of the proofs that we find in this book of literally thousands of Bible prophecies that we have already seen fulfilled. You know, science talks about numbers, and they throw numbers out like they actually know what they're talking about. Well, this continent was formed 587 billion years ago. They throw out numbers, and they, they may have some type of a formula in which they derive that number from, but to be quite honest with you, they throw out numbers as if they're fact, and they fail to mention that this is just a hypothesis that one particular scientist had, and the science community liked it, and so they just all jumped on it. But I'd like to remind you that just in the prophecies of Jesus alone, I mean, I don't even remember the number, but the the law of probability, I mean, we're talking about one out of, I mean, almost an innumerable uh, amount of possibilities that all of these prophecies could happen in one person at one time and in one place. And these prophecies were not by one man. Have you noticed that men like Nostradamus, they talk about his prophecies. And if you read them, he's got all of these vague generalities. And if you wait long enough in human history, you're going to find something that, oh, I bet you that prophecy is talking about this. I remember after 9-11 that people were writing books and peddling messages about how that the Twin Towers are a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And of course, I, and I'm always interested in that, and I, I would look at that and I'd think, well, you know, that seems a little bit coincidental, and uh, I'm not quite sure about that. And, um, you know, to me, most of that, my conclusion is that, well, it might be interesting speculation, but I certainly don't see hard enough evidence to say that this is actually what that Bible prophecy is talking about. But I do know this, the Bible prophecies that point to a baby being born in Bethlehem 2,021 years ago, and all of the details surrounding that, the wise man, his mother, and Joseph, how he was treated by the government, all of the things that led up to his rejection, his life, and all of that. Listen, you cannot come up with anything more amazing than to point to the absolute dynamics of Bible prophecy being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't you find it interesting that the scientific community and uh, the powers that be, the accepted mindset of today, they just dismiss it as a coincidence and they try to poke it full of holes when those holes don't exist. There's a real simple solution, and that is this, that the prince of the power of the air is very, very real. Daniel chapter number 9 and verse number 24 The Bible says here, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression 
and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That's Jesus, by the way. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, watch this, even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and the overspreading of abomination he shall make it desolate." even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Let's pray. Father, bless us today and help us as we take a look at some very important truths in the Word of God. Lord, it is my desire to help your people today. Help us to know how we ought to view this uh, interesting day that we live in. We pray that the Holy Spirit of God would have free course. I ask for a touch from heaven. I ask for an anointing with power from on high, not for my sake or my glory, but God, for your glory and for the good of every listener today. Please bless us now, we pray. Have your will and way in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach to you this morning, Rebuilding in Troublous Times. We see a number of interesting but more important relevant phrases in the text in which we just read. In verse number 24, we see the phrase, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Now, there is a week in the Bible that refers to an actual calendar week, seven days, Sunday through Saturday. But in the Bible, often we see these weeks as prophetic weeks, and each week uh, represents a seven-year period of time. So if 70 weeks are determined upon God's people, prophetically in God's calendar, that would represent 490 years, 70 times 7 being 490 years. We see that in verse number 24. Secondly, we see the phrase, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's in verse number 25. Interesting that the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is an historic event. We don't just find it in the Bible, but we find it in human history. And that is when the pagan king, who was over the captivity of the children of Israel, made that decree and he sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We see that on human calendar, and yet it was prophesied long before it ever took place. Number three, in verse number 26, we see after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. And of course, we find that this represents the time period in which Daniel is prophesying, and when Jesus the Messiah is cut off, when he is crucified there in Jerusalem. The next phrase that is relevant and interesting is in verse number 26 as well, where it says, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened historically in 70 AD, the people of the prince that should come. That was the Romans, the Roman government. I find it interesting how Rome is connected with the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Definitely a connection. And so the people of the prince that shall come. If you want, if you want to still be here after the rapture, I don't recommend it. I highly don't recommend it. But if you find yourself here, 
and you're trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, this prince that shall come, uh, you'll be able to find that he has some kind of connection to the people of Rome. And then the last thing that I believe is interesting and relevant in our opening text is found in verse number 27, where it says, He shall confirm the covenant. For how long? For one week. One week would be a seven-year period of time. The Bible refers to a time called Jacob's Trouble as a seven-year period of time. We commonly refer to it as the tribulation period. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice to cease. Jesus warned of this in the book of Matthew, chapter number 24, when he said, when ye see the abomination of desolation, he told the Jewish people, don't go back to your house and get your stuff. Don't grab your prepper bag. Run. Get out of there because you're not going to make it if you don't get out quickly. When you see the abomination of desolation, the prophecy of the scripture makes it clear that the Antichrist, the man of sin, will make a covenant, a league with the nation of Israel. And halfway through that covenant, he will break that covenant. And all you know what is going to break loose here on planet earth. This leader who comes, this prince that shall come, will be unlike any before him. His means and his methods will be through policy rather than through military dominance. Have you noticed how policy has dictated the course of our life so frequently in previous years, in modern times? We are controlled more by policy than we are by military physical might. In fact, military and physical might They're defunding the police. They're getting ready authority. They're weakening our military. And it seems like every world leader is uh, continually having some agenda to weaken the military and to try to bring everybody together and, and have peace. But that is always through policy rather than through principle. This thinking process that is permeating society. I'm not a prophet, but I am an honest observer. And I can see that this thinking process is training our society to follow this prince that shall come when he shows up. Daniel chapter 8, verse number 24 says, And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. You better keep your eye on Israel if you want to know what's coming next. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Thank God that there is a stone cut from out the mountain without hands, and it's going to crush the Antichrist. Revelation 19, verse number 11, gives us a clear picture of it. When Jesus returns on that white horse, praise the Lord, Jesus is going to prevail. He's already won the victory. Hang on, brothers and sisters. The victory is not something that has to be won. It was won on Calvary. Victory is just something that we need to receive. Praise the Lord. There are many prophetic indicators in the text that we have already read today. And let me say this. I will leave the speculations to people who are way smarter than me. I must confess, I am not great at processing massive quantities of information and seeing how they all fit together. I study it, I look at it, I try to learn as much as I can, 
but I must confess I have to leave a lot of that to men that are way more intelligent, have sharper minds than me. But suffice it to say, without any fear of contradiction, the day in which we are talking about is rapidly approaching. Now, I am certain of this. This is not speculation. This is certainty. I am certain that the church will not be going through the tribulation. But there are many other prophecies that are either too complex for me to grasp or too unclear for me to be dogmatic and actually present them at as truth. So for now, there are too many things we need to know that are certain that it causes me to be reluctant to get caught up in the things that are uncertain. Folks, we need Bible truth desperately today. We need things that are certain. And I know that the devil would have nothing more than have us get caught up in conspiracies and speculations and things that are interesting and focus all of our time on those beliefs and watch the body of Christ squabble over who's right and who's wrong, all the while the certainties are being left out and the sheep are starving and Satan is gaining a stronghold and uh, all while people pat themselves on their back for the truths that they've discovered. I'm not thinking or talking about any particular Bible teacher when I say that. I've been around this business for 35 years, and I've seen a lot of interesting teachings come and go. Many. Many that are, oh, that really looks like it's true. Well, let's just wait and see. And only to find out that, no, it wasn't the way that... You know, there's a popular... I'm not sure if he's still alive, but there was a popular prophetic teacher from the state of Texas. I'm not going to mention names. You can figure it out for yourself. He was always coming up with some great prediction that he extracted from the Bible. And when his prediction didn't come to pass, he didn't get up and say, hey, I'm sorry, I missed it. He would just come up with new predictions and just keep people strung along. All the while, he had a mega ministry and sold tons of books. And uh, God's people, the sheep, would be greatly deceived and distracted And folks, we need to be wiser than that, amen? You know, much of what's... Let me me say this, and, 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 and I'll just confess, once again this morning, I am being a little bit sharp and sarcastic, and that is this, a lot of the nonsense that is popular in modern Christianity today would never be popular if Christians just weren't so dumb sometimes. Really, I mean, it's like if we would just get in the book and and know what the Bible says, we'd be able to recognize those counterfeits. Sometimes I just think people, you know, people sell books and people jump on these bandwagons. Oh, this is so wonderful and our church has grown through all of this. And I just want to go, you know how many scriptures you're ignoring because of this one little proof text that this famous preacher is emphasizing and ignoring all of the rest, and I just want to pull the short hair out of my head and go, come on, people, wake up. So anyhow, forgive me for being sharp and sarcastic. Or don't. I <laughs> Today, I don't care. In the Bible, there are two what I would call wall builders who stand out. Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra led the rebuilding of the temple, or at least the foundation of the temple, while Nehemiah led in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And so we think about this concept, rebuilding in troublous, troublesome times or troublous times. We can all agree that we're living in troublous times. It, it would be easy to quit. It would be easy to just start taking care of number one, just take care of me and not worry about God or anyone else. But I remind you that from time to, from the time that Jesus was crucified, think about this for a minute. From the time that Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary 
until 70 AD when Jerusalem was once again destroyed in 70 AD. Get a load of this. That was 36 and a half years. That's a little window of opportunity there that God doesn't even prophesy about that time frame. It's all kind of lumped together. Messiah is going to be cut off. The city is going to be destroyed. So you know what? We may be living in the day and age where it's sealed. Jesus is returning. And destruction and judgment is ready to fall. But folks, there may be a 36 and a half year window of opportunity or more or less. I don't know. But if the prophecy left out this 36 and a half year window, then regardless of what we feel about the world in which we live, we don't have to be doom and gloom and say it's just, there's no point. We cannot rebuild anything or we cannot make a difference. 36 and a half years is a long time. I've been serving the Lord for about that amount of time. I got right with the Lord in 1986. And so when I think about my entire ministry, that would encompass that same 36 and a half years from when Jesus was crucified until Jerusalem was destroyed. That's a lot of time to serve God. That's a lot of time to make a difference. That's a lot of time to raise our family and teach them and train them the principles of the Word of God. Don't give up. Don't give in. And don't start just thinking about yourself. So what can we do? This is some really simple, brief lessons from the wall builders in the Word of God. Number one, pray for providential intervention. Now, often we think of intervention and we use the word divine intervention. And I realize that really we're talking about the same thing, but I strategically chose the word providential because both divine and providential are talking about providence. It's talking about God. But there's something about the word providential that has to do with God having a plan and a purpose and Him making or designing history to pan out the way that He has prophesied it. So personally, I like this concept of providential intervention. I read in the Bible and I find how that God providentially placed a beautiful lady by the name of Esther in a key position which influenced the heart of a pagan king. And eventually that pagan king allowed the work in Jerusalem to start back up. You know, that's a wonderful providential truth. And it's more than just a love story. It's more than just a story of heroics when the good guy wins at the end and the bad guy hangs on the gallows. But I do like that part of the story, don't you? But it's a story of God's amazing providence. Hey, wouldn't it be a blessing if God would raise up someone to influence the president of our nation and to turn from the anti-biblical thinking and agendas that are prevalent today? Wouldn't that be a huge, huge blessing? Hey, God can do it in His providence. Do you know that God providentially placed Nehemiah in a key position? He was a Jew in captivity, but he also was the king's cupbearer. Turn over to the book of Nehemiah with me, chapter number 2. Nehemiah, chapter number 2. In Nehemiah 2 and verse number 1, it says... And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then Nehemiah says, I was sore afraid. Get a load of a concept here that is totally, totally foreign to our culture. See, why was Nehemiah afraid? The, The king just expressed some sympathy for his sad countenance. Well, in cultures of yesterday, 
in which the authority of a king, or I guess I should say in yesterday when the concept of authority even existed, because it doesn't seem to exist today, Nehemiah was scared for his life because you did not let the king know you were having a bad day. You ever been around somebody having a bad day and it rub off on you and make your day bad? The king said, I'm the king. You don't do that or I will take off your head. You say that's mean or cruel. Well, maybe some of the authorities in your life aren't near as mean and cruel as you think. Nehemiah was sore afraid. He thought, oh no, I didn't hide it. It showed and he caught me. Watch this, verse 3, And said unto the king, Let the king live forever. I, I think Nehemiah is like, Well, if I'm dead, I'm dead. Since you asked, I'll tell you. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This isn't one of those canned pagan prayers. This isn't one of those, oh, our heavenly father. This was from the heart and this was quick. This was, oh, God help. (laughs) This was one of those where I don't have time to verbalize what I want to say, but God, you know what's in my heart. And it's like, oh, God, please help. Maybe here's an opportunity. You know what Nehemiah was doing? He was praying for providential intervention. Folks, we live in some troublesome times. We need to be praying for providential intervention, for God to raise up an Esther, to raise up a cupbearer, to raise up somebody that can do something to make a difference. Those that have power that, yes, were given to them by Satan in the permissible will of God, but may God's providence intercede and change the course of human history for the good of his people. I I know that if things don't change in America, the ship's going down. The ship's already sinking, folks. It's just a matter of time. We cannot continue. I mean, there's, there's a, there is certainly a division in our country that goes far beyond just conservative and liberal. It, it, it has to do with those who believe in God and His Word and the principles of the Bible and those who reject God and the principles of His Bible. And, and as I said recently, that You've, you've got to somehow make a connection between the process and the product. The proof is in the pudding. Uh, America's never been a perfect place, but back when the principles of the Word of God were prevailing, I think we could all agree that this was a much better place. It was more peaceful. People's lives, it was certainly a more moral place. There is so much immorality that is not only tolerated today, but it is sanctioned by society today. Things that are considered by God to be disgusting and abominable are things that if you believe them today, you are considered a good person in our society. And if you speak out against those things, you're considered a a very mean, arrogant person. We're living in some troublesome times, folks. We should pray that God would providentially providentially intervene and do something to try to give us at least maybe a little bit of relief. I don't know what God's doing, folks. I know sometimes I think, God, are you doing anything? I, I wouldn't ask for a raise of hands, but I think that all of God's people today are kind of scratching their heads and saying, Wow, where did God go? It just seems like that the miracles and the answered prayers, God still is dropping down those little, uh, those, uh, those blessings, those, uh, shower, not showers of blessing. We need showers of blessing. 
mercy drops round us are falling. But we do need the showers of God's blessings once again. Number two, number two, if you want to rebuild the wall, if you want to make a difference in trouble sometimes, then you can expect reproach and criticism. Nehemiah chapter number four and verse number one, but it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in the day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Folks, they're trying to get back to serving God the way that God said that they should serve Him. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big pro- proponent of this term old-fashioned, because old-fashioned sometimes means we're trying to do things the way that our grandparents did. Now, if grandparents did things more biblically than we do today, we ought to go back to what our grandparents did. So I'm not against old-fashioned, but I'll tell you what I do like. I like the term timeless, because there are some things in the Word of God that are timeless. And we need to get back to the timeless truths of God's Word, of holiness and sanctification and separation and real actual Christian living. But notice in verse number four, the Nehemiah said, Hear, O God, for we are despised and turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. Nehemiah wasn't pulling any punches. He said, God, they're not ridiculing us. They're ridiculing your work. Nehemiah says, turn it on their head, O God. You know, when people blaspheme and cause reproach for the name of Christ, sometimes I hope, at least privately, that God would do something to show Himself strong and to show them that what they believe and what they're doing is not true. I think from time to time in a person's life, God does show up and show Himself strong. I lived four, almost five years of my life in rebellion against God. Living my own life the way that I wanted to live, I wasn't living according to the Word of God. But I will say this, I had praying parents and I had people who loved me and prayed for me. And for about four years, I thought, you know what, I'm enjoying my sin. And, you know, I I had a few things that happened, but you know what, for the most part, I'm still having a good time and I'm enjoying it until I wasn't. And God did show up. God showed up in my life in a miraculous way. My life has been different ever since. I didn't repent. I didn't get right when God showed up. But I will say this. He providentially intervened in my life. I would to God that that would happen to you or to other people here today. I mean, listen, when God showed up in my life, it had nothing to do with the preacher or the parent or some friend that was trying to say, look, Randy, you should know better. You're not doing right. You need to do it. It had nothing to do with that. When God showed up, I knew, I mean, you talk about revealing, it changed my life. And I would to God that that would happen once again. But you know what? When I got right with the Lord and started serving Him, I started experiencing some of the ridicule and the criticism that Nehemiah, who was doing a great thing. I mean, you would think that people would be excited about the rebuilding of the wall. You would think that when you get saved and you quit drinking beer, that people would be excited for you. But instead, you get ridicule and you get reproach. Oh, they start calling you preacher. They start calling you missionary or just different little things, just little different cutting things, making false accusations. Hey, it's nothing new under the sun. Nehemiah had to endure the reproach and the criticism. Look, if you want to be accepted by this world, if you want to be popular in this world, then you're never going to be popular in heaven. 
If you want to be popular in heaven, then you're going to have to accept the fact that you're going to have reproach and criticism in this world. No one, and I repeat, no one gets it both ways. Luke chapter 6, verse number 22, red letters in my Bible. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Listen, if you cannot handle people disliking you or criticizing you for your faith, then you got something really, really wrong with your faith. If Jesus means anything to you, then certainly somewhere in your heart, you could realize that, hey, what Jesus thinks of me is far more important than what my friends think of me. In Luke chapter 6, verse number 26, red letters. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Now, preachers today want to be well spoken of. But listen, God's men are very often not well spoken of, often misunderstood, often misrepresented. Expect reproach and criticism in these troublous times if you'd like to make a difference. Number three, number three, trust God, but be responsible. Nehemiah 4, look at verse number 16. It says, and it came to pass that from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work and the other half of them held both the spears and shields and bows and the Habergians and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which build it on the wall and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every, uh, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work and with the other hand held a weapon. For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side, and so builded, and he that sounded the trumpet was by me. The trumpet, that's the, that's the security system. That's the alarm system. And so they're building, they're rebuilding the wall with one hand while they got the other hand on their sword or on their weapon. I hope you get the point. God says, look, be, trust him. Have faith, but be responsible. All throughout the Bible, you find that men who truly trusted God did not have this false faith of just saying, well, I'm just going to sit back and do nothing and just pray that God would do it. Listen, don't, don't expect God to miraculously do something that He told you to do. Well, I'm praying that God would save my loved one. Well, have you witnessed to them? Have you given them tracts? Have you told them, hey, can I tell you my testimony? Can I tell you how I got saved? Do something, do anything, but don't just sit back and say, well, I'm trusting God if you're not willing to do. Listen, in troublesome times, we've got to trust God, but we've also got to be responsible. Do you know that God doesn't work the same way at all times? When Christ sent out His disciples, He told them, not to take any preparations. He said, I don't want you to take, don't take any money with you. Don't take an extra pair of shoes. Don't, don't do, don't take anything. Just go and preach and I'll take care of you. But after he left, after Jesus left them and went to heaven, this is what, or, or before then, he said in Luke 22 verse 36, then said he unto them, but now, he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. You know what? You say, well, I, I, I'm trusting God, so I don't, I don't have a security system. I don't lock my doors. I don't carry a gun. Well, you need to take heed that Jesus warned that, hey, the way that God has miraculously worked in the past, we cannot presume that same working in our lives. Jesus said, now, now that I'm leaving, things are going to change. You need to, you need to go come up with some money and buy you a sword. Now, let me balance that out with some Bible truth. 
The point I'm trying to make is be prepared, but don't be a prepper. Because in Luke 22, verse 38, they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it's enough. Be prepared, but don't get all to where you're just focusing on spending all of your life trying to be a prepper and, you know, hey, have some guns and some ammunition. Have some food stored away. It might get you through some trouble sometimes. It may help you through a few weeks, but you know what? If you're totally focused on that, then you're missing the point. You're focusing on earthly things and you're neglecting eternal heavenly things. Take care of yourself. Take care of you. You know, really, I, 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 I'm sick of COVID, but really this truth is relevant to COVID. You know, ultimately, we've got to trust God. You know, if you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick. But if you do things that put yourself at risk, saying, well, I'm just going to trust God, I got news for you, you're going to get sick. I, I can just almost prophesy and guarantee it. If you're putting yourself in harm's way all of the time under this concept, well, I'm just going to trust God, you're going to get sick because God's not working that way at this time. Preacher, are you saying that God cannot providentially protect me from getting COVID? Oh, I'm not saying that. I pray all the time. God, please providentially protect me. But at the same token, I'm going to take a a mask or I'm going to stay away from this or I'm not going to be around certain scenarios. I I guarantee you one thing. I, I turned on the TV for a few minutes yesterday and a college football game was on. The entire stadium was jam-packed full of people, and they'd scan the crowd, and I didn't see a single person with a mask on. Now, I, I don't care whether people wear masks or not, but you know what? I look at that, and it's just like, it would be interesting to find out what happens two weeks from yesterday's ball games on the numbers, because it's just, it's just reality, right? It's I don't know if you're liking what I'm saying or not, but Jesus says, look, trust me. But at the same token, use some sense. Be responsible. Do the best that you can to protect yourself, to provide for yourself. But don't get so wrapped up in it that you're going to end up wasting a lot of your life either for no reason or if what you are afraid will happen does happen, you're going to find out that... All... Here's an illustration. Have, have you ever been driving down a two-lane road and had somebody that just had to pass you? And so, man, they hit the gas and they pass you and barely get in in front of the car coming. I mean, you just know there's a head-on collision right in front of me. And boy, they're just in a hurry to get where they're going and they endanger themselves and you. And so boy, they, they zip on past you. Phew, they're gone. And then they get behind traffic and you end up catching them at the next stop sign. You're, you're right behind them. That, that's exactly what's going to happen. You're just thinking, Oh, I'm going to do all this preparation and you're going to find out. Okay. You you wasted five years of your life so that you could extend your comfort level about 17 days. I I didn't even plan on saying that, but there it is. Verse, uh, excuse me, point number four, and I've got to hurry. I'm almost done. Point number four, uh, stop being selfish. If we're going to make a difference and rebuild anything during troublous times, we've got to stop being selfish. Nehemiah chapter number 5, and um, I'm going to kind of paraphrase a little bit of this. You have the children of Israel that were not taken into captivity but were left in the land. They still kind of got this kind of quasi-government going on, and so people are still existing, and they still have an economy, and they still have a 
uh, they still have magistrates and leaders and so forth. Some of them are Jewish, some are some, you know, partly Jewish, and some of them are, are uh, from other nationalities and so forth. But that's what's going on when Nehemiah comes back. And he finds that the, what had been going on is that they had been, uh, in order to, to buy and to sell the essentials of life, they'd been charging interest on God's people and basically putting them in such an economic burden that they're having to mortgage their lands and basically give up their livelihood, their inheritance, just so that they can put bread on the table. And, and Nehemiah rebukes them, verse 6, and I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. Then I consulted with myself and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said unto them, ye exact usury, you're charging interest, high interest, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. You know what they're doing? They're trying to profit off of other people's problems. And listen, that happens all in our society, but that is not the way that a Christian ought to be. And let me just throw this in. You've got, you've got all kinds of, I mean, society today, it seems like everybody's trying to get something at somebody else's expense. And you know, that's the basic tenet that's difference between gambling and speculative investment. You know, you can, you can speculate in an investment and yeah, you could end up losing money. But I'll tell you the difference in that and gambling. When you gamble and you win, that means that other people lost. But you may end up losing money in an investment, but if you gain, then that means that everybody else gained. You're not being selfish and saying, I want to get something for me at somebody else's expense. Haggai chapter number 1 and verse number 4. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell? And, and by the way, Haggai is prophesying at this time right here that we're talking about. He says, is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses? That's the same word as ceiling. You know, you're building your houses with the ceiling. And this house lie waste. When he says this house, he's talking about the house of God, the things of God. He said, now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. If we're going to make a difference, then we've got to get God's blessings upon us. You're not going to get God's blessings by being selfish with your time, your talents, your treasures. If you're using your life just for you and not for God's house and for God's purpose, you're going to find that you're just like the hamster on the wheel. You've got activity, activity, keeping you occupied, keeping you busy. But when the day is done, you have nothing that really means anything to show. I thank God that when we invest in the service of God and in the things of God and the house of God, when we invest in those things, it is fulfilling beyond all measure. And it makes our life purposeful. And there's just something about it. Witnessing, learning the Bible, praying. I mean, fellowshipping with God's people. Trying to make a difference in these children's lives for God. All of these things, there is nothing better than those. So stop being selfish if you want to make a difference in troublous times. And then my last point, take a look at Ezra chapter number three. My last point is don't have unrealistic expectations. Ezra is right before the book of Nehemiah. Ezra chapter number three. You know, I, I look at, I look at my life, folks. I look at what's going on in church today. 
and I think about how things are in comparison to how things ought to be. I think about it in comparison to how things used to be. And sometimes I just think, oh Lord, we're, we're in trouble. We're in a mess. And sometimes I just think, wow, I, I sure hope that God's grading us on the curve today. Because the best of Christians don't measure up today to the nominal Christians of yesterday. I, I somebody, somebody thought I was being falsely humble for saying this one time, but I, I believe it with all my heart. If, if the condition of Christianity wasn't so poor today, I feel pretty certain God would have never called me to preach. He, he would have had too many men that are far superior and could do a better job. I, I really honestly think that God looked down and said, you know what, I don't have much to work with. I'll take that Randy Mitchell guy. I mean it. I really honestly feel that. I mean, I read the sermons of yesterday's preachers, and I've heard some of the cassette tapes and some of the recordings of yesterday's preachers, and I just scratch my head and I go, well, God, I sure hope that you're grading on the curve today. Ezra chapter 3, verse number 11, this is the, excuse me, I'm in the wrong chapter here. Verse number 11, and they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good for his mercy endureth forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. I hope you see what's going on here. All of the new, all of the young people, when this new foundation is laid, woo! This is awesome! But all of the old timers that saw the temple before, they're weeping going, wow, this is, this is a cheap substitute. You know what? If you want to make a difference in these troublous times, you cannot have unrealistic expectations. Listen, as a pastor, I cannot have unrealistic expectations. As a parent, we cannot have unrealistic expectations. doesn't mean that we lower the bar. It doesn't mean that we water down the Word of God. It just means that there are some things that they are what they are. There is nothing we can spend our time. We can spend our whole life griping about it. We can spend all of our time trying to fight against the current when sometimes we're just better off to, you know what, I'm doing the best that I can and I've got to leave it in God's hands because that's all that we can do. Don't have unrealistic expectations or you'll quit for sure. Don't expect something to happen that God's just not planning on doing today. You'll end up quitting and what good does that do? You'll never get anything rebuilt for God if you quit or get discouraged. In conclusion, in light of that point, I'd like to say this, fix what you can fix, and uh, somehow figure out how to let the rest go. Nehemiah chapter number 8, if you'd turn there with me. Nehemiah chapter number 8, and verse number 8, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. You know what you have here? You have preaching going on. And I would to God that more preaching was would fit this description rather than the emotional manipulation that is popular today. You know, real true preaching is read the Word of God, give the sense, cause people to understand. You know what? If you understand what the Word of God says, the Holy Spirit of God can, use, can, can work in your life and help you to assimilate that truth in your life. But people today need to, I mean, we're ignorant of the Bible and we've got to start finding out what the Bible says 
And once we find out what it says, we'll see how it miraculously fits together and how it miraculously affects our life in a positive way. Verse 9, and Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. That's not a bad thing. When the word of God reproves you, when you see that, hey, I've been wrong and God is right, we ought to feel bad. Modern preachers today are scared to death that they're going to say anything that would make anyone in their congregation feel bad. Listen, if the Word of God shows up in your heart and it makes you feel bad, praise God, that's the best thing that could happen to us. But for here and for now, for this time, God says, don't mourn. Verse 10, then He said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Wow. Fix what you can fix. But wouldn't you agree with me that there are things in our past, mistakes that we've made, that are unfixable. We cannot undo them. There are messes that, you know what, we're stuck with this. We cannot undo it. We cannot fix it. So we've got a choice. We can either suck our thumb and say, well, my life's not perfect. It's not what he ought to be, what, what I ought to be. So I might as well just quit. Or we can focus on what God has done. He's forgiven me. He has blessed me. Forget about what you don't have and start focusing on what God has blessed you with and rejoice. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. If we're just kind of mully grubbing around and we're just all, you know, we're just worried about COVID and Biden and Pelosi and Trump, I don't care, whoever. We're just constantly just worrying about how bad that things are, then we're not going to have any strength. And if you have no strength, you're not going to be able to build anything. You're not going to be able to labor. You're not going to be able to hold a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other hand. You're not going to be any good for anything if you have no strength to do anything. So fix what you can fix. But learn how to just let the rest go and enjoy God's goodness and enjoy God's blessings. I hope we've given you something here this morning that will help you know what we can do. These wall builders, they they went through the same things that we go through, very similar. We can learn the same lessons from them, and we can make a difference until the Lord comes. I don't know if we've got 36 and a half years or 36 and a half minutes before the trumpet sounds, but let's make every minute count for the Lord Jesus Christ and continue to try to make a difference. Father, thank you.